Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Today is our legal roundtable, and there is a lot to discuss. Many things have happened within the last month. That includes a trial that was supposed to kick off in St. Louis this morning involving Bayer Monsanto's weed killer Roundup and one that is kicking off in Cape Girardeau involving a different product, dicamba. We've also got a case involving a former undergrad at Washington University who was accused of phys- physical and sexual assault by three different women. He's and we'll talk about what the judge ruled. There's going to be a lot to chew on. So our panel today, uh, it includes Mark Smith. He's the Associate Vice Chancellor and Dean for Career Services at Washington University, and he's also a lawyer. Mark Smith, welcome back to the show. Great to be here. And we're also joined by Bill Freivogel. He's a professor at the School of Journalism at Southern Illinois University Carbondale, and he too is a lawyer. So Bill, welcome back to the show. Hi. I want to start today by talking about some legal news that made national headlines, and that is Kim Gardner's lawsuit. This is against the city of St. Louis, the St. Louis Police Department, and the special prosecutors who are pursuing a case against her. And Kim Gardner, of course, is the St. Louis City Circuit Attorney, basically the chief prosecutor for the city of St. Louis. Now, Bill Freivogel, this (laughs) civil suit that she's brought, her legal team is using what felt like a pretty obscure law to me to bring this case. Am I wrong about that? Well, it's a post-Civil War Civil Rights Act. It's called the Ku Klux Klan Act, and it was uh, passed after the Civil War to try to stop some of the red shirts and Ku Klux Klaners from taking the rights of uh, the newly freed uh, African Americans away from them. didn't obviously succeed <laughs> very, a, a noble very well, <laughs> but it has been used. It has been used in modern cases. But it, it is a, I mean, it is a, a difficult. I mean, it's a stretch to make the case because, I mean, basically she's saying that uh, you know, just as in the years after the Civil War, uh, people tried to disenfranchise uh, black people, that that the sort of the white uh, establishment in St. Louis is trying to keep her from uh, from providing the equal protection of the law that uh, she promised in her campaign. Uh, uh, when she promised to uh, take steps to end uh, police violence uh, against African Americans. So is it enough here for her to prove that these disparate entities are conspiring against her or for this lawsuit to succeed? Uh, Mark Smith, is she going to have to prove that they're conspiring against her for racist reasons? Yeah. So my understanding of a 1985 claim, you got four elements. You have to prove a conspiracy. To, to number two, to deprive the plaintiff of equal protection or equal privileges and immunities. Three, an act in furtherance of that conspiracy. And four, an injury or deprivation resulting. So I read through her lawsuit, and and I mean she's suing the city, the POA, the Police Officers Association, or RORDA, their their head or their spokesperson, and Jerry Carmody and his kids who are uh, the special prosecutors, and then finally this guy, Charles Lane, who brought a, a lawsuit against her. And he's a former police officer, a which former I guess police ties officer, him right. in a bit to her. But when you look at the, the actual pleadings, I mean, there's a lot of talk about the connection between um, Dowd, who was one of the defender, def, um, defense attorneys for Greitens. Um, there's connections between Mullen, the judge who appointed Carmody. And Carmody, but there, I didn't see any connections between the POA and Carmody. Um, between, it just said there's lots of 
bad, from her perspective, bad, um, you know, she thought that they were coming after her. But you got to prove this conspiracy. So I, 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 I have a hard time even getting past back that. What do you think? Bill? Yeah, I think the hard part will be to prove that there is a conspiracy among these folks. And, and I think it will be very difficult to uh, and probably impossible to persuade a federal court that they should interfere in the way a state court system operates, uh, mm-hmm. you know, barring evidence that would be greater greater than this. I mean, a lot of the really uh, – some of the most offensive um, uh, actions that Gardner points to in her lawsuit involve uh, comments that uh, white police officers have made, right. you know, in social media or in other, uh, you know, very, you know, racist or nativist comments. Uh, I mean, those are very, those are very shocking. But I mean, it's the police officers' association. We're talking about, we're talking talking about a union. These uh, are high know, level uh, high, yeah. officers. These so, are just rank and file people, right? You know, how can how can you link that to the city? Can you link that yeah. to the city police department? Can you link that to the special prosecutors? I think I think that that will be difficult. She also talks about a lot of the, you know, the police misbehavior that occurred uh, during right. the Shockley protests you know, that have resulted in, in court cases since then. And, um, you know, that, that, that is at least something that ties, you know, that ties together the police and, and the city. Um, but again, that doesn't tie into the, to the special prosecutors. Right. I mean, I think... I, uh, um, yeah, I, I think there a point you can make is she may have she may have a good overall uh, political point that uh, the, the the city establishment is out to get her, mm-hmm. uh, but she also may have been making a lot of mistakes on her own, uh, and and I fear that I fear that really maybe both things are true. And, and there's always a tension between the police officers and the circuit attorney's office. I mean, Jennifer Joyce. You know, they were after her a, a lot of times because because she would um, prosecute police officers or because she would not bring cases forward. So there's always this tension. I agree that the tension um, now, and you see this in these postings, these very racist postings, and, and it seems more um, more intense against, uh, against Gardner. Against Gardner. Right. But, you know, the Ethical Society, which is the – uh, for the most part, Black Police Officers Association. You know, they when they did their press conference, they you know they also said we we have some issues with Kim Gardner's office. I mean, the Public Defender's Office has said we have some issues. Um, so, you know, I remember we t- talked about this a couple of times when when she was first appointed and people were losing were leaving the office. And I remember thinking, well, that's natural because you've had Jennifer Joyce in there for sixteen years. You're going to have some turnover. It doesn't pay. But now it seems like her own people are leaving. Yeah, people it, it she's seems brought in more, have now turned over. And and the public defender saying we don't think you know they're not giving us the information and they're not playing fair. It just seems like it's more than just people going out out to get there. It may, both things may be happening. I mean, I, I do think there are police officers who are out to get her. Yeah. I mean, you can see her point about, uh, I guess, Mullen, Carmody, and Dowd all went to Chaminade in 1967 class. Uh, well, Mullen uh, was not. Mullen, not Mullen. No, yeah, he's but, much yeah, younger. Carmody and Dowd. Uh, and, uh, 
Uh, you know, so I can see the point about well, this is the you know this is the white boys coming after the reform prosecutor. I do want to um, ask our listeners if they've got a question no. about this this lawsuit. They're welcome to give us a call, and we can put it to our panel of experts. Um, we're at three one four three eight two eight two five five. That's three eight two talk, or you can send us a tweet at STL on air, or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. Uh, Bill Freivogel, I do want to go back to this point about the special prosecutor because the theory of many political observers was that she filed this federal lawsuit in order to stop her deposition in the criminal probe being run by this special prosecutor, Gerard Carmody. And that deposition did, in fact, go down on Friday. Is there something that could now retroactively happen that could stop it from being used or could stop this case in its tracks? Or the fact that that deposition went forward, has the train now left the station? (laughs) This lawsuit has not achieved what a lot of people thought she might have been trying to achieve with it. Right. Well, no, I think that's a, I think that's a good point. I mean, I think it's I think she I think it's unlikely that any federal court would go back and and undo anything related to the deposition deposition. I suppose if they accepted the overall theory of the of the lawsuit and and that therefore the deposition was part of what they agreed was uh, some sort of conspiracy, they could do something about, you know, not admitting it into evidence in some in some case. But but I think, you know, it's it, there are very few examples uh, of where a federal court will get involved in the way state courts are uh, carrying on uh, their process. There's something called the abstention doctrine. Okay, to stay out of that kind of stuff because they say you know only if if like uh, if like Kim Gardner didn't have. Uh, a fair court to go to. Well, she, you know, she took her case to the Missouri Supreme Court, tried to stop the, you know, the use of the, uh, you know, the uh, the search of of her office. Uh, uh, so I don't think, you know, it's a it's a stretch to say the Missouri Supreme Court is part of this conspiracy. I mean, she yeah. doesn't she doesn't allege it, but that you know, so yeah. so that you know, this is not the kind of situation where a federal court would want to get involved. And- I was going to say, just to explain for your listeners, I think most people know what a deposition is, but, um, you know, a deposition is something that happens typically before a trial, and it doesn't happen in the courtroom. I think this, it, from press reports, it looked like it happened at uh, Carmody's offices, mm-hmm. and and you give testimony under oath. Typically, the deponent has their attorney there, and then the, the lawyer taking the deposition, and there's a court reporter, and they're sworn in. So it's under oath. And, and your goals as a lawyer are to kind of discover new facts and tie the person down to their story. So, and I'm not sure where I got this impression, but I got the impression that the deposition was not like all day. I thought they started late morning, and it sounded like they... They wrapped pretty quickly. quickly. For a deposition. And, and you know, you know, depositions, you, you, they usually just drag on forever. You ask every question because this is – you don't get a second chance. So I, I wonder – and this is just supposition, but I wonder if Gardner's uh, attorney was objecting. Typically with objections, you know, the, the scope of discovery is any evidence or, you know, anything reasonably calculated to lead to the discovery of admissible evidence. So it's pretty broad, but – um, I wonder if they're willing to go to a judge to say, hey, she wouldn't answer all this stuff. We think that's inappropriate. But she might be saying, I'm not going to answer that because it's going to jeopardize investigations. You see that in her pleading, this idea that somehow the discovery they've already done is jeopardizing the inv- 
investigation of existing police officer misconduct and everything. So, um, so there could be more legal battles that, that we're not have, even aware of. I would have loved been a fly it's, on the wall in that <laughs> We all have yeah. been. <laughs> we're talking to our legal panel. Um, that's Mark Smith, the Associate Vice Chancellor and Dean for Career Services at Washington University, and Bill Freivogel, a professor at the School of Journalism at Southern Illinois University, Carbondale. Um, I want to come back to this, com- this conversation about Kim Gardner's lawsuit, but first I want to take a quick break, and we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. And now back to our legal roundtable. This month, we're joined by Mark Smith, an associate vice chancellor and dean for career services at Washington University, and Bill Freivogel, a professor at the School of Journalism at Southern Illinois University, Carbondale. And last but not least, we're now joined by Nicole Gorofsky. She's a former federal prosecutor, and she's now in private practice at Gorofsky Law. So, Nicole, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So we've been talking about the case involving Kim Gardner suing a whole bunch of entities um, in federal court. We've got a number of callers who um, have some questions for our panel. We're going to go to that. Um, I want to let people know, though, if you'd like to join the conversation, you can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. I want to go to Eddie, who's calling from St. Louis. Um, Eddie, hi, you're on. St. Louis on the air. Hi, how's everything going? Thank you for joining us. I understand that um, you were yourself a police officer. Is that correct? Yeah, I was in the. I was city officer for about five, six years back in the nineties. And we, I heard, and I just want to say, we never really had a problem with the prosecuting attorney's office with we, Jennifer Joyce. Yeah, we always got along. Yeah, we knew there were cases they weren't going to issue get angry because there was, you know, well, they didn't issue a, a drug charge or anything like that, but it was it was more a symbiotic type of relationship. And now I just see the animosity and and uh, anger that's coming from the office towards the officers. I just don't know why she didn't go in, because even back then there were bad officers, and we wanted them out just as well as they did. Hmm. I just don't know why when she didn't come in, she didn't work with the police officers' associations, the ethical society, uh, the officers' association, to try to address these issues instead of going the route that she did. I was mm-hmm. wondering if your panelists had any idea why she just went gung-ho 100% against them instead of trying to work with them. So, so Eddie, I, um, I have a different recollection than you do. And I remember reading the the police officers in the city used to have a website. Now it's you, you can't get on it. Um, I think you have to be a police officer to get on it. And what I remember was, you know, they always complained about whoever the chief was. So when Henderson was the chief, he was the worst thing that ever happened. And Mocha was going to be great. And then a year into Mocha's thing, we all hate Mocha. And I mean, it's not, I'm, I'm overgeneralizing, but the same way with, um, with the, the circuit attorney, I mean, and I'm not saying every police officer had a problem, but I think there was a, and, the, and this idea, um, uh, that the to work with the police to root out the the corruption the you know even within the police officers the people who were running the um, oh, what's it called the professional standards basically um, it, the internal affairs internal division. affairs right yeah they you know they they would talk about how people just wouldn't talk um, hmm. you see like in the the case um, now I can't remember the name where the the police officer. Um, uh, came up and 
he was acquitted, but the drug Shock, dealer Shockley. Yeah, Shockley, Jason Stockley. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Shockley. you know the the other officer did not testify. So this idea that let's let's all work together, I mean, from my perspective, it's a bit naive. Nicole, I know you used to be a federal officer or a federal prosecutor. Um, what's your sense of sort of that push-pull between prosecutors and police officers? Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly what I would call it, a push-pull. And so I was a prosecutor, not just a, a federal par- prosecutor, but before that I was a state prosecutor as well. So I kind of understand this across the board. And, and that's exactly right. There's always that push-pull. And I'm going to add a layer on top of that, which is um, – you know, prosecutors always uh, have to turn over impeaching information about any police officers that they work with. And so it affects a prosecutor's case if there is information in a personnel file um, that, you know, someone has committed misconduct or um, not testified truthfully or, you know, anything like that. Of course, that's not an excuse to not put things in the file. But that is a, a prosecutor's responsibility to know those things and to know that that is going to affect their case. And so there really is always naturally that push-pull between the prosecutors and the police officers. And, um, you know, of course, it's a goal to make that as, you know, uh, kind and as gentle as possible, but it doesn't always work that way. And here we don't know where it started and how it escalated, although we know that there have been historical problems. And, you know, it's just we know that the situation of where it is right now is is horrible. It's gotten really fraught. Um, I want to thank Eddie for that call. Bill Freibogel. Uh, I mean, one thing to remember is that there's there's been animosity between Kim Gardner and Jeff Rorta, the the uh, person named in the suit and the the uh, uh, agent for the Police Officers Association for a long time. They used to serve together in the state legislature. They didn't like each other then. And they don't like each other now. Um, and, and, it's, and it's also important to remember the context of Kim Gardner's election. She was elected post-Ferguson by sort of a, a young reform group and electorate that wanted to see change, particularly right. when it related to investigation of police uh, uh, use of force. And so it, 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 it did make some sense for her to set up a special unit to conduct independent investigations of allegations of police mis- excessive use of force. Uh, but that, but it didn't, that didn't make sense to the police department or the, or the police Or the union. Board of Aldermen. They, they <laughs> shot the that down. Aldermen, That's yeah. kind of one thing she points to in this lawsuit is her agenda being thwarted. But um, I want to go back to the phone lines. Angela is calling from St. Louis. Um, Angela, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air. Hi, how are you? Thank you for um, joining us. My question is about Jeff Rorda's reputation with the Arnold Police Department and how he acquired the job as the union representative for St. Louis City. Um, you're asking about this, or do you have some information you were hoping to impart? <laughs> I'm just wondering how someone from the Arnold Police Department that was fired um, for misconduct acquires the lead position for the union for the city. Mm-hmm. I think that is actually a really good question. And I know that whenever Jeff Rorda's name comes up, you see critics of him bringing up that very record. And the lawsuit that Kim Gardner filed mentions that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, Angela, I think I think you've got a great point there. I don't know if any of our panelists have the answer. Well, I, I don't have the answer. But I do know, you know, and, and as background, I was on the police board in the late 90s, early 2000s. And you know, and I was talking to a friend about this yesterday. You know, the leadership of the police, it, it 
not all of the leadership, but it seems like the the really um, outspoken, aggressive, provocative. Um, uh, so when I was on, there was a guy, Gary Wiegert. He was a sergeant, then had a radio show that was very provocative and and I not in a good way, and so and and Broda seems the same way, and it and um, it, it's unfortunate because I do think there's there's much that could be done, and and he just seems to be just dividing things. Angela, thank you for that call. I did have one thing I wanted to make sure that we talked about in the context of this lawsuit. And I will say the part of the lawsuit I found most persuasive was the connections between Eric Greitens, who Kim Gardner was prosecuting, and his defense team, the man that was later then picked to become the special prosecutor in this case. You know, they're former law partners, they're high school friends. And I get that maybe it's hard to prove it's a a racist conspiracy, but doesn't she have a point in arguing that Judge Mullen picked someone who's not likely to be unbiased in his pursuit of, of, of justice. And if that's the case, does she have any recourse other than a lawsuit like this? Can you appeal the appointment of the special prosecutor in a more normal sort of pr- state court process? I mean, I think she has a point, uh, but I don't think she has any recourse. I mean, Trump didn't like Mueller either, you know. <laughs> There's nothing oh. you can do. <laughs> right. Well, and I think she. I apologize. Ahead. I think she tried, you know, bringing it up to the judge, and I think the judge, you know, that was her recourse. The judge shot down her argument, and I think that was her recourse. Although, you know, this this statute, this federal statute that she's now suing under, I think, you know, it's it's yes, it's a different animal, but maybe this is another opportunity for her to um, explain that maybe there was a racial motivation under there. Okay. So that allows her to bring this up again in a different court, potentially. Possibly. The other thing is, I mean, St. Louis is a small legal community. I mean, I, I know Jerry Carmody because um, I was at Brian Cave when he was at Brian Cave. And um, and I think he's, he's a former prosecutor, circuit attorney, assistant circuit attorney. He's... Um, I think very well respected in the in the profession. He's a good trial uh, litigator, and so um, you know everyone kind of knows everyone else. And I'm not suggesting that <laughs> oh they just maybe know that's each part other. of the problem. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but but it doesn't mean that. Um, it's racially motivated, mm-hmm. you know. And that, as, as we were saying yeah, earlier, she will it. have to prove that for this case to Absolutely. succeed. Yes. Okay. I want to talk about another um, political case. This one is a lot less, um, I don't know, maybe it's also fraught. Who, who's to say? The Missouri Supreme Court has weighed in on the ongoing dispute over the St. Louis City Treasurer's Office. Now, the city's parking meters bring in about $18 million annually, but under state law, only about 40% goes into the general fund. The rest goes to a separate fund controlled by the city's treasurer. Treasurer, and that is currently Tashara Jones. A pair of citizens, joined by an alderman, sued over that setup in 2017. And the following year, a circuit court judge found this system unconstitutional. The treasurer's office appealed. We now have a verdict from the Missouri Supreme Court. And I have to say, as a non-lawyer, I am more confused than ever. What is going on in this case? And what's it going to take to get some resolution? Nicole, do you have any thoughts well, on this? The only thing I was going to say is that, as a lawyer, I'm more confused than I was before. <laughs> I'm so glad it's not me. So, no, I find to be an incredibly confusing issue, and I'm not sure I 100% understand it either. It has to do with, you know, city charters and whether, you know, state law um, under the Constitution of Missouri, not the United States Constitution, um, 
you know, can allow the state legislature to make rules that, you know, go on in contrary to the state charters. And it is an incredibly contrary, or I'm sorry, confusing issue. And I'm not sure I can clear it up very well. <laughs> I think part of the thing was they, they said the, the trial court, I think this was uh, Judge Stelzer's ruling. He didn't rule on all the issues before him. And, and so they said, we want a final um, disposition of everything. So send it back there. Good way to kind of punt so and they, just buy some time. They've sent it back to Judge Stelzer. Does that mean after he rules, then these poor lawyers have to go back to the Supreme yes. Court? I mean, That's if, what if, lawyers do. Yeah. Don't, don't worry about poor lawyers. Yeah. I guess I, I'm feeling sorry for you guys, yeah, yeah. and I yeah. shouldn't. This is just well, how it goes. No, I think, I think as, as Mark says, it's a, a really a procedural thing. You've got to have all the issues resolved at the lower court before the uh, and have a final judgment before the Supreme Court. But like Nicole act. said, why, why couldn't they go ahead and rule on it? I, I you know, this it Come seems on. like a punt. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so one other political case in the news that I want to just touch on briefly, and that is that we have a new head of the public defender's office in Missouri. Uh, the person who was previously running it, Michael Barrett, made a lot of waves. You know, he famously tried to appoint Jay Nixon to represent indigent <laughs> counsel. He's he's now left uh, to go, I believe, back to where he's from, which is New York State. What do we know about his replacement? Mary Fox. Well, I think she's terrific. I mean, she was one of our guests uh, maybe six months ago or, yeah. or, or a year. Uh, I think she has a very good reputation. She's, uh, uh, but she's also facing a, a huge job here. You know, this there's Missouri is always ranked uh, at almost at the bottom of states as far as resources provided to public defenders. They have huge uh, lists of clients that they can't keep up with, and uh, and it, that that problem seems never to get resolved. And the, the chief justice of the state Supreme Court, he actually used his state of the judiciary speech last week to bring more attention to this issue. He seemed to be trying to make a really practical argument that the whole system just can't work without more money for the defense side of things. Yet I'm not hearing any more motivation coming from lawmakers to deal with this. It just seems like this is one of these situations that everybody in the system knows is a problem. No one wants to take on. Mark Smith, right. what's going to take? I mean, the state to... has a constitutional responsibility. It says in the Constitution, we have to do this, and the state won't give the money. And so then, I mean, she has a just a a Herculean job because on the one hand, she's got this constitutional obligation that she's got to make sure it happens. And on the other hand, they're getting sued. Their their attorneys are getting sued. We've talked about this before where because they didn't do a good enough job, um, because they're overworked. And it just seems like um, it's a it's a really difficult position. I wonder, you know, you know, I was talking about this the other day. Um, I remember as a young attorney getting appointed to federal when I joined the federal court, you get appointed, you're appointed case where you represented like prisoners typically in, in their 1981 actions or whatever. And um, I wonder if they'll start appointing people to be public defenders. But then if you get some lawyer who's never done criminal law, I'm not sure yeah, that's that the best Yeah, that doesn't seem solution. fair either. <laughs> well, we're talking to our legal roundtable. That's Mark Smith. He's an associate vice chancellor and dean for career services at Washington University. Nicole Gorofsky, who's a former prosecutor. She's now in private practice at Gorofsky Law. And Bill Freivogel, a professor at the School of Journalism at Southern Illinois University, Carbondale. We need to take a quick break, and we'll be back shortly to keep chewing over the legal issues. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. 90.7 KWMU. 
Welcome back. We're talking to our legal roundtable about a host of interesting issues. And this month, that roundtable includes Mark Smith of Washington University, Bill Freivogel of the School of Journalism at Southern Illinois University Carbondale, and Nicole Gorofsky, who's at Gorofsky Law. Next up on our roster is a fascinating federal case involving Washington University. Now, this was filed by a former student, and this is a guy who was accused of sexual assault by a fellow student, um, and he was expelled for it. It turns out, as we now find out from this young man's lawsuit that he had sex with a freshman when she was really, really drunk. He basically admits that, but he says he didn't realize she was too drunk to consent. And so he sued the university alleging several things, due process violations, breach of contract, and that the university was biased against him because of his gender. Now, he lost this case. The judge dismissed the lawsuit last month. He basically said that even if everything the young man alleged was true, it wasn't enough for him to win. I want to unpack a couple of these arguments the judge ruled on here because we all hear a lot about these Title IX cases. It seems relatively unusual for it to get this far in the legal process. And this is this question of due process. Um, Nicole Gorofsky, do universities owe students accused of sexual assault due process? Absolutely. So due process essentially means both sides get equal treatment. And um, absolutely. So that's owed to uh, the accused and the accuser. And um, so what this person was essentially saying was that uh, there was gender discrimination against him in the way that he was treated in the process. And um, the court said even with everything that he alleged in the petition, it wasn't enough to show um, gender bias in the process. No, he didn't like the process. No, he didn't think the process was fair. Uh, but he didn't prove enough to get to the level of uh, gender of actually showing there was gender bias in the process, meaning it was unequal and that the female got a favorable treatment to what he received. We hear from so many young men these days who are kind of worried they're getting the short end of the stick and things are too biased in favor of young women making complaints. It seems like the judge kind of took that on directly in this case, Bill. Well, yeah, I think he did. I mean, he 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 rejected that. I mean, that is the claim of, of that the that the young man made, and he rejected it. Uh, I mean, the young man had said that he had faced a hostile environment. That, uh, the, by the way, I, I need to disclose I'm I'm the head of the uh, outside publication board for the student newspaper, and some op eds that appeared in the student newspaper are relevant in this case because the student was saying that the newspaper was publishing op eds by uh, the women, uh, anonymous op-eds that also did not give his name, uh, that uh, and the women writing the op-eds had been victims of his, and that then the uh, Lori White, the vice chancellor for student affairs, wrote an op-ed uh, that was sympathetic. Uh, said I think she herself had had in college had had uh, uh, been assaulted, and that she was very sympathetic. But also went on to say how important it was that there be due process for any person who who was accused. Nevertheless, the the the, the student who filed the lawsuit said that that showed that she was favorable. Uh, to the victim, and the judge, as you say, took this took this right on uh, that to say that uh, you know for the university to say that they are trying to root out sexual harassment uh, is is not to be biased on one side or another. 
Uh, it's interesting, this this breach of contract allegation that this young man makes. Um, he points out that he may well have paid something close to $200,000 to Washington <laughs> University. Now they've expelled him. Apparently that means like your transcripts don't get released. He can't go to law school. He wanted to be a lawyer. We're now learning. I don't know what to say about that. Um, but do they owe him a diploma after all of this money that he paid? No, I think it's clearly part of his contract. If there is a contract, if that creates a contract. With that, which that is actually a legal argument in in itself. Whether um, and and actually, Missouri state law actually has a lot to say about that. But that's so that's an interesting concept. But let's say that there is a contract. Then isn't it part of the contract that he follow the uh, campus rules and the campus policies? Okay, which, so that gives them a clear out. On I that think so. Contract. And, yes. But I think that's the part of the lawsuit that that could still be alive. He could still file that. He could still uh, make that claim in state court. So he, all his federal claims. Are done. To, are, are done, but but not necessarily state claims. When, when I uh, when I thought looking forward, one interesting thing, one one claim he had made is that WashU by not uh, accepting the Trump administration's um, you know attempt to provide accused uh, accuser accused the accused um, usually men with more due process rights that WashU by not agreeing to implement those Trump. Uh, procedures was showing that they were hostile to men. Uh, and uh, the the judge rejected that as well. Okay. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's actually an interesting issue for all campuses across the U.S. because most of them have not implemented those new policies and no one has said that they are forced to. And now this judge is just sort of affirming that, like, just right. because you don't put in, the, in place these new policies, you're not opening yourself up to this kind of litigation. Right. Interesting. The, the suit also claimed that because WashU had, had been very active in arguing in the Missouri legislature against providing more rights uh, for the men accused, uh, that that was another indication of hostility towards men, and the judge rejected that as well. Okay, so big loss for this young man (laughs) who may not end up becoming a lawyer. Um, One other hot-button national issue I wanted to make sure we talked about today, and that's an interesting case involving the death penalty. Madison County prosecutors are asking the feds to charge five people with capital cases, which would mean that they could be sentenced to death if if everything went prosecutors' way. And that's even though the state of Illinois abolished the death penalty in 2011. So how would this work? Mark Smith, any thoughts on um, this idea of bringing the feds in to do what state prosecutors cannot? Right. So I think what they're saying is, well, they uh, they were in cars and they went over um, uh, between state lines. And so we're going to try and make these federal crimes. And so the feds can prosecute uh, the feds have said, yeah, we're not so sure. Um, you can't – it's not that easy to become a federal uh, uh, prosecution. And so I think right now they're deciding whether or not they're going to take it. But it seems to be a workaround to try and get to the death penalty. But my understanding is the feds have not executed anyone for, you know, over 10 years, right? 16 so, years. 16, yeah. yeah. So, so I'm not sure. This is not necessarily a fast track to getting a, a defendant killed. No. Okay. Um, is there any sort of precedent for the feds taking a case on, I don't want to say flimsy, but on such a pretext as the crossing interstate lines in order to make it a death penalty case? That I don't know. So, I, you know, I was a federal prosecutor in the office they're asking to take, you know, that they're asking to take these cases. And, you know, I'm not sure there's precedent for it. It never happened while I was there. Um, and, and my thought is, you know, 
for for the federal prosecutors to take a case, it has to have a federal hook. It can't just be, oh, well, the state doesn't want it, so feds, can you take it? It has to have a federal reason to take the case. And that's actually a much smaller realm of cases than you think. Um, statutes have written in them what the federal hook may be, whether it affects – it's something that affects interstate commerce, like uh, sexual exploitation of children um, affects interstate commerce because child mm-hmm. pornography is on the internet, which is a method of interstate commerce. Um, or um, the Man Act, which is another form of child exploitation where someone drives over state lines but with the intent to have sex with a child. So just the fact that some of these people may have crossed state lines – uh, isn't in itself enough to make these federal crimes, which I think is why the federal prosecutors are being very cautious here, and I think they're right to do so. I, in the end, I don't think most of these cases are going to be ones that fit under federal jurisdiction. Okay, so these guys could be looking at life in prison, but it seems very unlikely that a death penalty. Yeah, the, the yeah the and the prosecutor's office, you know, they issued a statement that seemed to be putting cold water on it. They were pointing out that they're. Uh, you know, they have limited jurisdiction. They don't have general police powers. Right. That's why most murders are are prosecuted locally. Plus, you know, it's it's like this. It, it, it it's like this effort to get around the whole reform effort that occurred in Illinois, where they abolished the death penalty. You know, it's, Illinois was the was the poster child for uh, wrongful convictions. Thirteen men were convicted and. Uh, sentenced to death, who ended up being um, released from prison for, on, under wrong, wrongful convictions. So, you know, for for them to try to get around the reform that resulted from from that miscarriage of justice is. So, what are the Madison County prosecutors up to then? Is this just because these are such high profile cases? They're kind of um, grandstanding to show the voters we're trying to do something. We'd like to kill these guys, even if there's no legal mechanism for us to kill them. Yeah, I mean they're horrible. They were they were horrible murders. One is a triple homicide. Oh, yeah. The other is this home invasion case home invasion, yeah. involving this this prominent lawyer, which is just terrible. Yes. So you think they're just making a statement? I think more that's than a anything. great guess. I mean, I don't know if we know for sure, yeah. but I think that's a great guess. <laughs> Let's talk about another case that, um, you know, is sort of in the national spotlight. This is actually two lawsuits involving Monsanto, our homegrown company now owned by uh, the German company Bayer. Um, Two lawsuits involving Monsanto were supposed to get jury trials this week in Missouri. One is in St. Louis, and that involves the weed killer Roundup. It was supposed to start Friday, but the judge postponed the trial date indefinitely at the last minute to give the parties time to negotiate. Now, I saw it's very interesting to me. The mediation is being handled by Kenneth Feinberg, and he's the guy who handled all those 9-11 settlements. Um, Mark Smith, is that an indication of just how much money is at stake here? Yeah. I mean, they've already gotten hit with a couple of, I think, um, billion with a B dollar verdicts. Now, they were reduced to, what, like $80 million, which compared to $2 billion is chicken feed, but $80 million is $80 million, so it's still a lot of money. And, and they have all these lawsuits. So I think there's an attempt to trying to coordinate all these lawsuits and get, reach some kind of system-wide settlement. I think they're also trying to get maybe some kind of warning. Um, if, and if they get a warning, it's like the warning on cigarettes, then it would allow um, state court actions <laughs> to be preempted by federal law so you couldn't bring them anymore. So um, – and then the – 
the Cambia, the, the Cambia, I think I'm saying that right, um, suit, that's separate. It's a separate suit um, yeah. going to trial this week in Cape Girardeau. And, and there the issue is more the idea of the this um, herbicide being um, hurting other farmers' crops. And, and you guys had a great thing on uh, um, St. Louis Public Radio uh, with the, the expert talking about the different ways. It's not just, I always thought, oh, they're just spraying and it's blowing in the wind, but the idea that when the when the water evaporates, it carries it with it. So even if you take best efforts, it may not be able to control it. And that it's really hurting a lot of other farmers. So I don't know what the solution is going to be to that one. Yeah, I mean, the thing with the Roundup cases, um, and I guess in the claim, you know, just for people who don't know, is that, you know, Roundup can potentially be a, a cancer-causing agent. And um, what they do in a lot of cases like this is that they take, you know, four or five cases and they try them and um, they're called uh, what we call bellwether cases, which means that they kind of represent um, the typical cases and then uh, the parties sort of agree that whatever happened in those cases are going to kind of um, set the tone for the rest of the cases and then um, after that, someone like Ken Feinberg, um, who, as you said, was um, the mediator for the 9-11 fund or Virginia Tech and Archdiocese of New York, all these big funds where they had to dole out money, um, can come in and say, OK, based on these bellwether cases and the verdicts that we got and the amounts of money for this you know, type of um, – you know, um, effect that this roundup had on someone, this is how we can dole out the money. And so, um, you know, the fact that uh, these four claimants are going together and are going in St. Louis, obviously, because Monsanto used to be here is, is a really big deal. We're talking to our legal roundtable. That's Nicole Gorofsky, a former federal prosecutor who's now in private practice at Gorofsky Law, and Bill Freivogel, a professor at the School of Journalism at Southern Illinois University, Carbondale, and Mark Smith, associate vice chancellor at Washington University. Um, it makes sense that the, this lawsuit was slated to happen in St. Louis because that's where Monsanto was based. But at the same time, we're talking about a St. Louis city jury. Monsanto is a hometown company. Bill Freivogel, do you think if this case did make it to a jury, would that give Monsanto Monsanto, any sort of advantage? Well, I don't. I don't think a state jury in St. Louis would necessarily be favorable to Monsanto. Uh, uh, on, on the other hand, a uh, a federal jury like the one that's going that potentially, I guess, would be hearing the dicamba case involving the peach trees. Um, um, I don't know. I don't know where, where they might come from. I guess it would depend. It would be if it's well, in Cape, if it's in, if it is in Cape Girardeau. Um, you know the the peach tree farm, the, the, where the thousands of peach trees apparently died as a result of blow a wind or or allegedly because of dicamba blowing into the field. Um, you know there might be some some jurors on there who would be very very sympathetic to a local farmer. I don't know. Uh, yeah. The. the um I mean, federal court's going to – Eastern District of Missouri is a much bigger geographic area. Obviously, right. the, the mm-hmm. state court city of St. Louis is the city of St. Louis. There's 300,000 of us. We get called. We're constantly serving on juries in the city. Yeah. <laughs> got to go down to this courthouse, right? And my perception of my fellow St. Louis city jurors is that we're a pretty feisty bunch. We're not really a friend of the man, uh, No, so we, we're not a friend yeah. of the man, I don't think right? there's a ton of love for Monsanto here. Yeah. I think uh, that's right. You know, and we're talk- I mean, we're talking in the end here – Really big money. Uh, apparently, yeah. apparently, what Bear is trying to get to is get rid of all these roundup cases uh, um, for about ten billion dollars. 
so, so you know, a lot of roundup cases around the country, like the one here, have been put off to try to get this settlement done. To make and, it all go through this and their, stock, and their stock prices dropped. And they, with this uncertainty, they need certainty. That's what business people like. But you, you kind of wonder, when Bayer did the acquisition of Monsanto, you know, part of what you do is your due diligence. Did they just drastically underestimate these lawsuits, think, oh, no, this is never going to happen because – I mean, it, it seems like they've just bought the biggest liability. And it's fascinating reading a bit about this dicamba case. It seems like they moved on to pushing farmers to use dicamba because of all the litigation mm-hmm. surrounding Roundup. And so now if this is going to be the start of a whole bunch of cases involving dicamba, um, I don't know that I want to feel that sorry for Monsanto, <laughs> but it seems like these guys can't catch a break here in the pesticide business. Yeah, they, I mean, they started develop Monsanto started developing dicamba-resistant seeds after weed started uh, seeming to be resistant to Roundup. Okay. Um, You know, the other thing about this lawsuit is that uh, uh, about a year ago, uh, some of the discovery resulted in a lot of Monsanto papers coming out, and and that that, uh, at least according to Monsanto critics, seemed to suggest that Monsanto uh, was ghostwriting some of the um, the studies that said there was no cancer-causing problem with Roundup. So, yeah. In addition to having some bad legal verdicts, they've had some bad press as well. So, I don't know what to what yeah. to make of this former homegrown company. Um, also in the news this month, speaking of bad press, former state representative Albert Wal- Walton Jr. has been disbarred. Some of these allegations against him. As a layman looking at this, you wonder why the bar didn't take action sooner. I'm wondering if any of our lawyer panelists have some thoughts on that. They did take action sooner. And I was on one of these bar disciplinary panels for about a dozen years. Never encountered uh, Mr. Walton. But but what happens is a lot of times it's a small issue. So you issue a, a, a letter warning or they get some kind of thing. Oftentimes the bar will require for more serious things like a suspension. We want you to... Um, have a mentor that will go with you or have somebody show us how you're keeping your financial records because he also was putting money in his own funds, which is a big taboo. You can't do that. Um, and and then at the end, I mean, he was – the reports say he was yelling at judges in the courtroom. So you wonder if there was something else going on, which oftentimes these cases there is. involve. I'm not suggesting it is for Mr. Walton, but for other cases, a lot of times there were mental health issues. There were substance abuse problems that then were man- manifested in other ways in the, in the courtroom or wherever. Nicole, do you think the bar should take a stronger hand instead of warning people to just cut off their law licenses a whole lot uh, sooner? You know, it's hard to know what was done earlier here, but I, I think there it was clear um, from some of the things that I read that he had an 18-month suspension prior to yeah. this um, in 2017, and so this wasn't his first run-in with the bar. Um, I think it is... Um, a good lesson, I you know, f- for lawyers and for, cl- you know, clients out there. I think people should be, you know, weary of people who take their money and then don't hear anything about the work that's going on. And, you know, I, these when I read the actual factual situation, it's very sad for these people. Some yeah. of them paid, you know, significant amounts of money and um, then asked for receipts and asked for evidence of work and none of that um, appeared. And, you know, I, I think that's incredibly sad. And, um, you know, I, I do hope that the bar was watching it. But like I said, it does appear that there was some evidence that they suspended him in 2017. And it even looks like maybe some of this behavior afterwards was he was trying to cover the suspension. Mm-hmm. So, um, 
you know, I, I don't know how much the bar was on top of it, but at least they were doing something. Well, they certainly have, have been. I mean, I, I think you could say that, the, the, you know, there should have been more severe action sooner. Uh, I mean, he was first admonished by the bar uh, November 27, 1989. Uh, then it goes th- way back. Then yeah. again, 2001. Then 2004. Then what, what Nicole was just talking about, 2017. I mean, come on. <laughs> but, but but for your listeners, I mean, it's a good uh, lesson if you are going to uh, hire an attorney. One of the things you can do is you can go to the Missouri Supreme Court, the Office of Chief Disciplinary Counsel, and all this stuff is public. So you can look and see, has my attorney had uh, problems? Have they come up? I mean, I'm not saying every person who's had a, a problem, you know, sometimes mistakes are made or things get lost. But somebody who's had a consistent issue that's a real that should be a a warning so it might be good to research your lawyer yeah. and uh, as nicole mentioned maybe get some receipts right away when you write that check <laughs> right you can't count on your lawyer having your best interests at heart what is this world coming to you should, yeah. <laughs> so in our final minute here i know there's an impeachment trial going on in washington dc bill freivogel what about our local uh, delegation are you proud of how they're acting here <laughs> well the person who's been particularly in the news particularly on fox news uh, has been josh hawley you know josh hawley uh, back on january 6th uh, before Nancy Pelosi sent, sent along the impeachment articles, he was introducing a resolution to enable them to dismiss the case without a, without a trial. Now he's saying he's against witnesses, but if there's going to be witnesses, there sure has got to be Hunter, Bi- Hunter Biden and Joe Biden, too. Uh, and he says it so, I mean, he sounds so intelligent as, <laughs> when he's saying these ridiculous things. Well, Josh Hawley making the Missouri Bar proud. So Bill Freivogel of the School of Journalism at Southern Illinois University Carbondale, thank you for joining joining us today. Thanks. Uh, Mark Smith of Washington University. Thank you. Thank you. And Nicole Gorofsky of Gorofsky Law. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWNU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.